All right. Should we begin? Yes. So yesterday, we spoke about the, I, the, the word benini. Benini means the one in the middle. Right? The word makes reference to an idea, right? an idea of being in between two things. And we, we first disentangled that from the notion of average or ordinary, right? Not in every context is that which is in between two things, the ordinary or average or expected thing, right? Um, and then we spoke about how it's unusual to give something a, a um, description of in-between if you mean that in kind of a substantive way because the, the notion of in-between, say two things that are to the extreme, um, where, where each thing is kind of substantively different is that well, what doesn't have one extreme doesn't have an extreme, it's just the ordinary basic thing. So why would you need to give a specific name for that? So spoke about like most people would not consider themselves to be truly honest people. But people would not consider themselves to be really dishonest people, right? Um, and we don't need a special name for that. We just call them most people, right? Average. Right. So, but here the bainani is, is an entire, is, is the name of a, of a whole mode of being, which is, which is meaningful, which is substantive, distinct, and it's all right. It warrants a whole book, or better part of a book. Um, and the basic takeaway message was that the idea of a bainani in this context is counterintuitive. When you have something where either conceptually or especially psychologically there appears to be a dichotomy, a binary, either one or the other, the idea that there is an in-between those two possibilities um, is something that is not obvious to the person. Something needs to be, be pointed out and reinforced. And the idea here is that the Bainini is going to be in between the Tzaddik and the Russia. And the idea there's a space in between Tzaddik and Rasha, as has been described by the Tanya, is not intuitively obvious conceptually and is certainly um, psychologically difficult to come to accept. So I'm just going to refresh the last points. The way we've described the Tzaddik is something that is pure. Right? The, the godly soul has sole sovereignty, sole domain over the entire life of a person. In contrast, we, we set up the rush as someone who the animal soul has any amount of influence in the life of the person into how they live their life. Well, it seems if you put it that way, either you're a tzaddik or you're a rasha. Okay? It doesn't seem that there's conceptually space in between. More importantly, if we take the notion of, being, of a tzaddik as something that we should actually be, in other words, we... we, we, we we feel that there is some sort of an imperative to be a tzaddik, then being a rasha has to be deemed as a kind of failure. But if, we, we, if, we're, if we're going to be honest with what tzaddik is, tzaddik also seems to be um, quite unattainable, kind of unrealistic. So we're faced with a problem that 
a person can no longer think of themselves as a, a, a good or decent person if they take the notion that they ought to be a tzaddik to heart, coupled with, and that, and that being a Russia, which seems to be the only other option, is unacceptable, and yet consigns of the reality that it appears that they're doomed to be a Russia no matter how hard they attempt to break out of that, that tzaddik seems you know, over and beyond the ability of the person to actually attain. Okay? Um, and so there's a, a difficulty in kind of how to conceptualize and view oneself in that sense. And the idea is that there's some space in between these two um, that has to kind of be carved out and elaborated and explored in order for a person to really know how to live in that space, not just... Um, and, and, and the key thing here is that we should not understand the bane need to be compromise. A bane needs something substantive, someone substantive in their own right. Just to add to that point, in chapter 14, the Alter starts off saying every person should strive to be a bane And the Tzemach Tzedek the third Chabad Rebbe makes a comment that when he says every person should strive to be a Baini, he says even a Tzaddik. That a Baini, as we elaborate on what a Baini is, there's something substantive about what a Baini is that in certain sense, from certain perspectives, is actually superior to the Tzaddik. And so in a sense, a Tzaddik should try and find a way of also um, inhabiting that Baini space, that Baini mode of being. Who said that? The Tzaddik. Okay, but that's enough of the introduction. Now we're going to actually learn the text and the information presented. Shall we? Mm-hmm. You mind shutting the door because there seems to be noise. Okay. The Benini, is he in whom evil never attains enough power to capture the small city so as to clothe itself in the body and make it sin? That is to say, the three garments of the animal soul, namely thought, speech, and action originating in Klippa, do not prevail within him over the divine soul to the extent of clothing himself in the body, in the brain, in the mouth, and in the other 248 parts, thereby causing them to sin and defiling them, God forbid. So the first thing that we have about the Bainani is that the evil never gets to the strength that it is able to manifest in the garments. Now I want to focus on the word never. Okay. What does never mean? Is never a word of compromise, a word of, you know, coming to understand or certain things, or is never a kind of an absolute word? Okay. So is the bane, so I want to just, is the, is the first description of the bane, is the bane being presented as a compromised position between our animal soul and our godly soul? No. No. The first information we're learning about the bane is that when it comes to evil, when it comes to the ra, when it comes to the negativity of the animal soul, there's an absolute rejection, absolute blockage. Okay. Now that 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 occurs specifically in terms of the in terms of whether or not that evil can manifest in behavior. So in other words, this person will never sin, not in doing a sin, not in speaking anything sinful, or thinking anything sinful. Okay. Um, that sounds somewhat unattainable, correct? Yes. Okay. Before we go and try and make it more somewhat attainable. 
let's make it more unattainable. How are we defining sin here? Read the text carefully and tell me how he's defining sin. Okay, right. Sin is only things that are thought, speech, or deed. Good. What kind of thought, speech, or deed? Okay. Now, is it correct that everything that is permitted according to Jewish law necessarily originates someplace other than the klipa? So, for instance, in Jewish law, it is permitted um, for a person to buy a kosher chocolate bar and eat it, and then buy a second and eat it, and a third and eat it, just because it tastes good, right? Is that permitted according to, if I called up the rabbi and said, am I allowed to do this? What would the rabbi tell me? You have to. No, you have to. Is he, am I allowed to? Am I, am I transgressing the halacha by doing so? No. No, I am not. That is perfectly permitted. Why are you going there? <laughs> I'm just thinking about the after effects of eating that much chocolate in one sitting. Fine. But is it forbidden? No. No. Okay. Where does that originate, though? Where does that behavior originate in? So what does that mean about the Bainani? Is the Bainani a person who never transgresses the halacha? Or is there more to a Bainani than that? What, how are we defining sin? That thought, speech, and action which originate in... In other, now, just to refresh our memory, what is, in terms of klipa, there's, there's only two options. It is an absolute binary. Either something is klipa or it is, what's the opposite possibility? Kedusha. Kedusha. So what makes something kedusha holy versus klipa? The degree to which it expresses godliness. Let's put this in, in terms, I'm not saying, you're, I'm not saying that you're, you're wrong I'm not saying that you're right. I want something that is more um, as Kleep and Kedusha manifest in the human being. It so, helps you serve Hashem? If it helps you serve Hashem, no. Because, for instance, sin, like flat-out regular old sin, can causally ultimately lead you to serve God, right? You sin enough, you feel guilty, you repent, change your ways, right? Um, that doesn't make the sin holy. Maybe in retrospect, we could talk about that. So not at the time, right? Right. We want to be careful about arguments that are consequential, that because A leads to B, therefore, whatever's true of B leads to A. Right? That, that's just not, you know, that's not true about Judaism. We don't think that way. So, Okay, but I want, I want to, I I, again, that could be true, but I want to unpack what that means. What does it mean that something is a is holy or klipa in the life of a person. Is it for me or is it for Okay. Okay. I want to change it ever so slightly because for Hashem can be mean many, many, many things. I want to like reduce the for Hashem to like the lowest level. Is it a mitzvah or not? So first thing is if it's a mitzvah, it's always holy. The act of a mitzvah is always holy. And the act of a transgression is always klipa. That goes without saying. But most of life is not mitzvahs. Most of life is not transgressions, right? 
an act originates from klipa if the motivation behind the act is to drive me away from Hashem. And it originates in Kedusha if the motivation behind the act is to bring me closer, closer to Hashem. With the caveat that a mitzvah is always an act of holiness and a transgression is, is always an act of klipa, regardless of intent. With the caveat of what? That a mitzvah is always an act of holiness and a transgression is always an act of klipa, regardless of intent. Mm. So, if I go to work so that I am able to support myself, because it is important to me to live a life of connection to Hashem, which of course is found in the acts of Torah and mitzvahs, then is my going to work originating in Klippa. I go to work in order to be able to support myself mm-hmm. so that I can live a life worth living to my mind, meaning a life of being connected to Hashem, which is manifest in the Torah and mitzvahs. Is that going to work originate in Klippa? No. No, does not originate in Klippa. On the other hand, if I go to work because I simply do not want to suffer um, the, the, the physical and psychological consequences of an impoverished life, where does that originate? Is there anything forbidden about going to work? No. No. Right, but I'm just talking about going to work. So we're make, this statement is, is quite an absolute statement, right? They're saying, this person... If they are doing something, why are they doing it? To get closer to Hashem. To get closer to Hashem. Now, truly there's higher levels. That's why the, the idea of doing it for Hashem can actually go higher and higher. Like, it depends what we mean for Hashem. The altar earlier in Tanya said very clearly, the lowest level where we can say something is holy is because you want to be closer to Hashem. To, to, to fulfill your desire um, to be connected to Hashem. Now, the more connected to Hashem you are, the less you life is weighed about yourself as a distinct individual. Okay? The, the centrality of self dissipates the degree you're closer to Hashem. Okay? Well, technically, can you say that like a mitzvah that you do if you're doing it not for Hashem is an act that comes from Klippa? No, you can say it's an act of Kedusha that Klippa is hitching a ride on, which becomes a more complicated thing, which is discussed later in Tanya. Okay? In other words, anytime you do a mitzvah, the origin of that mitzvah ultimately is from the godly soul's desire to connect to Hashem, and the act does connect you to Hashem. The question is, how, much, um, how many hitchhikers you know, hop on that, and how much of that may be... Um, corrupts what's going on, contaminates it, and, and, the, and, and that's a discussion for a later time. But that's, that's not really so relevant here. What's relevant here is that this person does not engage in any behavior which is indulgent. Which this behavior, and by indulgent means, does not lead to being able to be closer to God. Right? So, this person goes to work, they spend time with their family, but ultimately, the, the overriding consideration is, is this part of the process of allowing the godly soul to manifest its, or is this, is, is it, actually, let's just stop this right now. Ultimately, there's a, is this something originating Klippa? If it is, then this does not get manifest. So if the, if the real drive and purpose behind a person doing something is nothing to do with getting them closer to God, this person doesn't do it. 
This is far more of an absolute code of conduct than what's demanded by the code of Jewish law. Right? So, right already here, does this sound like a person who is compromising between, well, on the one of a godly soul and I have an animal soul, like I need to like give space for both and acknowledge, that's not what's, like the, the first kind of starting framework we have is this person has a zero tolerance policy, not for sin in the halachic sense, but for sin as a mode of being, a sin as a approach to living. Like they're like looking at everything they do through the lens of what's my intention and where is this leading to? Well, we have to be careful because as we spoke about earlier, right? If a person hyperanalyzes themselves, oh. right? We're going to get to that. We're going to get. We're, we're going to get to that. We're going to have to do a lot of work to unpack what's happening internally. But I just want to talk about kind of like the objective result is that this person would never, mm. if we wanted to make this a little, bring this a little more down to more of a tangible level, we'll say knowingly. Mm. We could add that caveat maybe do anything which is not for the relationship with God. Mm-hmm. Because remember, in, 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 within the framework of Hasidic Kabbalah, in the mystical framework, you're either something is about bringing you closer to Hashem or moving you away from Hashem. There is no middle ground there. So the notion that something is permitted is irrelevant. It's interesting because they're like not just saying like something that takes me further away Right. Now, this is why it's important. Chapter 12 comes out. The altar already defined these terms in chapter 6 and 7. Right? So I'm kind of filling you in, right? In, the, in the, first, the first eight chapters of time, there's a lot of defining of terms. So in chapter 6, um, he, 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 he defines the term. Let me just give you the, the exact wording. That which does not surrender itself to God, but is a separate thing by itself does not receive its vitality from the holiness, and this is called the sitra achor, the other side. Right? In other words, it's merely the fact that it's not about God. Later, now earlier in, in chapter 4, and, uh, he discussed the idea of, of being closer to Hashem as a form of holiness. Okay, so I don't want to like, teach all the other chapters, but it's important. This is not necessarily selfless in the most extreme version. In other words, it's not like God has a plan and I'm here just to serve him. That's not, what we, that's not what's demanded of this person necessarily. Although later on in Tanya, we'll get to that. Here we're talking about something much more simple. The person has a godly soul, right? The godly soul clearly has a need to reunite with God. To, re, to reconnect with God. To unify with God, right? Pick the words you would like. That happens, the, the cleaving attachment, the connection to Hashem happens through the Torah and the mitzvahs. Much of life facilitates Torah and mitzvahs, right? That's it. As far as this person is concerned, that's, that, that, th- those are the only actions, those are the only kind of speech, that is the only kind of thought that this person allows themselves to engage in. So it is either... Right? Anything because anything else, and you start with the negative, anything else, if it's not that, by definition, what is it? Klippa. It's clear, it's turning me away from God. Hmm. Even though it's maybe not be forbidden. It may not even be morally abhorrent. Okay? So is the Bainini like, uh, is, what I'm is the Bainini like, well, we get, you know, you're not at Sadiq, we're not perfect. There's a perfection here, right? There's an absoluteness here. Zero tolerance. Okay. So it's not really what? It's not really in between. 
Well, we're going to see what it's in between, right? It's not in between. In other words, when we're talking about the conduct of this person, it's certainly not in between. In fact, we're going to be deeper. It's not just the conduct of this person. In terms of like a general orientation, is this person living a life that is centered around, at least on the behavior level, are they living a life centered around Hashem or something else, right? Which is kind of how he, on that side of the dichotomy, like where are they? In other words, if we're going to think of tzaddik and rasha, as far as we learned, is this person more like a tzaddik, more like a rasha? It's more like a tzaddik at this point. Why? Because the tzaddik, there's this absolute rejection, no place for the klipa. This person has no place for the klipa. But, right, you'll notice that the scope of what we're talking about is quite limited. What are we talking about? The garments, the behavior. This is in terms of what the person, if an action is motivated by anything other than the desire to get closer to God or serve God or however you would like to frame it, this person will not do it. If speech is motivated by anything other than desire to get closer to God or serve God, this person will not do it. If a thought occurs to them that is not motivated by that, this person will not allow themselves to think it. So there is that kind of absoluteness we see of the tzaddik, right? But we're not talking about the, like, the depths of their being. We're talking about something much more concrete. The actions that they choose to take, the words they choose to speak, right? And the thoughts they allow themselves to think. Only. The three garments of the divine soul, they alone are implemented in the body, being thought, speech, and action engaged in the 613 commandments of the Torah. Now, obviously this has to be understood in a broader sense. It's not that this person never eats, right? Is eating a mitzvah? Mm-hmm. When is eating a mitzvah? Before Day before Yom Kippur, eating is a mitzvah. When else? Shabbos. Shabbos, Shabbos Yom Tif, mm-hmm. holidays, Purim. When else is eating a mitzvah? To like keep yourself alive. It's not a mitzvah. Not a mitzvah. Wedding? Wedding and eating at a wedding is a mitzvah. It's actually oh, very relevant. People are uh, eating at a bris, right? So we have something called the Sudas Mitzvah, right? Bar Mitzvah depends. Depends, it depends. If it's on the day and the Bar Mitzvah boy says words of Torah, then it counts as a Sudas Mitzvah. Um, there are times something called a Sudas Mitzvah. There's interesting things, for instance, if you are um, sometimes eating at a, at, a, at, a, at, a, at, a, at a Mitzvah meal overrides other obligations. I don't want to get into all the details, but like for instance, certain conditions, certain times where you haven't destroyed all of your chametz, you have to like, stop what you're doing, go back and destroy all your chametz. But if you're on your way to a wedding, mm-hmm. assuming that like, a certain basic threshold was met, you cannot go back and destroy your chametz because you're involved in going to a mitzvah. Because eating at the wedding is a mitzvah. Well, Unless... Eat, so that's a mitzvah. No, but because it's a wedding. Unless it's the wedding of a... Uh, of a non-Kohen and the daughter of a Kohen. In which case, that's not such a mitzvah. What? Yeah. A non-Kohen. A non-Kohen should. Uh, a, uh, put it the other way. The daughter of a Kohen should not marry a non-Kohen. What? But is that halacha? It's halacha. Should not. It's not. It's permitted to. Should not. Unless the Kohen. Unless the non-Kohen is considered to be a Torah scholar. Oh. What is the considered? Like, is he a Torah scholar? Or is he a Torah scholar? So the, the, there's different discussions. The Tzemach Tzedek. This is very particularly relevant to me. My wife is the daughter of a Kohen, and well, I am not a Kohen. Well. Right. No. So the the the. the, the, the the yes. the the, the says as long as the prof- person is proficient in at least one tractate, that would suffice. 
but a complete ignoramus uh, um, because there is a kind of a, a sanctity of her lineage and that should be respected okay. by either marrying a Kohen or a, at least someone who like on a basic level qualifies as a Torah scholar. So <laughs> that's it. So it says like if, if you have, so if you have someone who's a, what? What? Enough for this. No, it depends on the, the 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 idea is that the idea is that, the idea is it's considered to be a denigration of the sanctity of the of, of, of the lineage of the Kohanim to marry somebody who's completely ignorant of Torah and doesn't possess that same lineage. Well, then is a, a is it a if the husband is a Christian? Yes. Okay. Is is the same thing with the daughter of a lady? Um, I don't know. I, I don't know. But, uh... Okay. Yeah? No, so I, when, I, when, I got, when, I, when I got engaged, I asked the rabbi, and he said, it's a good idea. Learn, 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 learn another tractate of Gemara. Just, uh, you know, it's a good idea. Which one do you want? Yeah. Okay. Um, now, keep in mind, that, like, different areas of Allah have different standards. But, okay, so eating can be a mitzvah to some degree or another. But, you know, the ultimate example of eating as a mitzvah is... Matzah, mar, um, and the four cups of wine, um, and they, those are the ultimate examples. Because there, there are mitzvahs to the extent you must eat whether you want to or not. Um, we don't. Ha- those are the only mitzvahs. Of the actual mitzvahs to literally eat. The other things that you're fulfilling mitzvah by eating, or you're fulfilling a mitzvah, another mitzvah, mitzvah of joy or delight by eating. But there, the mitzvahs actually to eat itself. Um, in temple times, obviously eating from the. Sacrifice is also a mitzvah. We actually made a special bracha. Just like we make a special bracha in the midst of eating matzah. Mm-hmm. What was the bracha? Al-Khila Zevach. Asher Kedishon Tzvitzivanu, Al-Khila Zevach. Really? Yes. For every korban that they would eat? Well, no. You, if you have, so there's a whole discussion. There's a whole discussion if you're eating, if you're eating the korban Pesach, you make one bracha, two brachas. But generally, yeah. So. Well, they also say shahaka. I was going to ask No, because you're eating it during a meal. You have bread. So, but then you have to say Allah Chilas Zavachah. Yeah, it's all, right. You still say that even though you said it. Because one's Birch Samitzvah and one is. Uh, you make a Brach when you eat Mar, right? Ashikisham is an Allah Chilas Mar. I guess right? so. Right? It's Birch yeah. Anyway, okay, so there's mitzvahs to eat, right? Okay, there's no mitzvah for me to have this coffee. There's no mitzvah for you to eat breakfast. There isn't. Such a disappointment. Not a mitzvah. <laughs> so they don't do it. Ah, so that, that obviously doesn't make any sense, right? A Bainini is a person who only eats when it's a mitzvah. No. What would it mean when it says they only, only the three garments of divine soul, being thoughts, reason, action, engaged in the six of the three mitzvahs, when they are eating, that eating, as far as they're concerned, is for the mitzvahs, right? So if the, if the eating can't be justified by a mitzvah, they won't be eating. That's what that would mean. Now, I want to be clear. I want to now also understand this idea conceptually. Do not immediately implement this into what the person is experiencing psychologically. Right? Because cause we, we've discussed this before, right? The idea that a person is going to hyper-analyze every moment of their life and, and to determine what they should be doing clearly is not a sustainable kind of thing. So that's not what we're talking. So the result is that this person wouldn't do it, but it, the, the full dynamic of what's going on, we haven't fully explored. But we've kind of set a boundary here. This person, if it is originating clip, but they will not do it, and the litmus test is, is it a mitzvah? Either it's actually a mitzvah or it's something that, as far as I'm concerned, I genuinely need in order to be able to get to mitzvahs. Because mitzvahs is where I connect to God. That's it. Other than that, this person does not engage in any other actions. They do not speak 
for any other reasons, and they allowed ourselves to think any other kinds of thoughts. Mm. That's quite absolute. It's quite, it's quite um, rigid. Okay? Anything less than this, what's that person called? Russia. Russia. They're compromising, right? They've allowed the animal soul to dictate the overall contours of their life, regardless of how much spirituality and holiness and godliness and mitzvahs there is present. What do you mean by this isn't actually what goes on psychologically? Because, like, well, I mean, I think it should be self-evident that the, the Bain author is not describing a person who literally at every single second before they mm-hmm. is engaged in some kind of self-reflection. Is this coming from Klippa? Is this, like, human beings can't function that way. There's more going on in the person that leads them to live this life. So... Let me give you an example of what I mean. Okay, this is professional athletes are incredibly skilled. Yes, don't agree that they're incredibly skilled. Yeah. I mean, they're not incredibly skilled at other things, but at whatever they're doing, right? I mean, um, do professional athletes engage in a in the middle of whatever they're doing? Um, a lot of third-person analysis of themselves as they're doing, oh, I should do this, or I should do that, as, as, they're, as, they're, as they're engaged in whatever the competitive sport is. No. no. Why not? If you want to do your best, you have to like, be completely in it. Right, right. You just can't function that way, right? Yet we all understand that there is a lot of self-reflection and analysis, right? And, and, and that goes into, like, there's a whole training process and regimen to get the person to be that kind of way, right? So I'm not, I don't want to say that it's, an, it's the same thing. All I just want to say is that, that you have to realize that you, being in this kind of a, a state that you can conduct yourself this way is not by, it just should be self-evident, is not by engaging in constant self-scrutiny. Should I do this? Should I not do this? And then act accordingly, right? A person will either not do very much or they will have sort of nervous breakdown if that's how they live their life. Clearly there has to be more going on. There has to be more developed inside the person to allow them to, to have this result. So we're just describing that kind of definition of what kinds of actions this person will and will not take, we haven't discussed how that comes about. And that's actually a common mistake because what happens if you are a Russia and you just decide, well, I'm going to act like a vanity. My my animal soul really is dominating my godly soul, right? Either it's more overt or less overt, right? We discussed previously. And now I'm going to decide to simply imitate the vanity by not doing anything, just, 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 just not doing anything that originates from the klipa. And all I'm myself, what's going to happen if I really try just doing that, nothing else? Are you going to snap I mean, at some point? I probably snap. I probably won't be able to maintain it. Not be, the, the reason is that people, people can't, keep, people can't live life not like they can't, like it's not healthy for them, like they're, they're actually incapable of living life with, with that degree of, of kind of third-person reflection on themselves moment by moment. Just think of a simple example, okay? Um, let's, say, let's, say, let's say you're um, driving, right? And 
you're about to pass somebody. Now, are you trying to pass them because it's really important for you to get to where you need to go in order to do more mitzvahs? Or is it just you're impatient? And now you have to engage in some sort of you know, self-analysis to figure that out? Do you think like, the person can actually drive if that's how they're going to drive? No. Right. How about having a conversation with a person? Now, I'm, I'm not saying there's no place for reflective self-thought and so forth. I'm just saying that there, don't... One of the problems with people in Tanya is they take this paragraph, or these two paragraphs, and they're just like, boom, that's it. That's, that's all there is to abandoning. But, I mean, if, even if we just take chapter 12, chapter 12 is a little bigger chapter, right? And then one in chapter 13 where he gives other, other variations on the theme of abandoning. There's a lot going on under the scenes that lead to this result. Okay. Yeah. It depends on what you're looking at. Wait, because when we talked about the tzaddik, we said that if a Bainami starts acting like a tzaddik, eventually he will become one. No, I didn't say that. Yeah. We talked about that. No, I said what a tzaddik does to become a tzaddik, a Bainami also has to do to become a Bainami, but it doesn't automatically, I did not say it eventually will happen. I know I didn't say that because Alder says quite clearly in chapter 14 and I, I didn't just learn chapter 14. So I don't know what words I said, but we miscommunicated somehow. So regardless of what I said, if I, if I misspoke, it was my fault, you misunderstood me, it was your fault, it's irrelevant. I didn't mean that. It is, there is no natural progression um, that by being a Baini you become a Tzaddik. It is true that what a Tzaddik does on his end to become a Tzaddik is along the same themes as usually what a Bainani would do to become a Bainani. Um, so but it's not enough to change the garments. 100% not. The changing the garments is going to be an important part of it. You can't like skip that. They, that's a, it would, it would that's be, not the first step either. No. I mean, th- this gets into an issue thing. Is that it could be the first... I mean, always, whenever you ask these first step questions, you run into a problem because the first step actually is never the first step. There's always something before that, if you think about life. Like, you're always in the middle. Right? You know. So, right. So, so, I mean, I think a general thing to think you ask of what is not, instead of what's the first, what's the next? Like, if you, if you stop, don't I think ask yourself what's the first step because you're, you're already in the middle of your life. You ask yourself what's the next step. Like, where, what am I after and before? Like, am I after a certain degree of inspiration and I need to now change my behavior? Have I changed my behavior, but I have not related that in a, in a, in a mature way? Like, what, am I, what, what two things am I in between? Rather than, like, having an objective step one, step two, step three, step four. Because you're never, you're never starting from zero. And things tend to cycle back on themselves as you grow. Um, the the, the, the Baal Shem Tov says that, that growth, spiritual growth is kind of like a, a, a spiral staircase. You keep hitting the same points, but at a higher level. So you keep revisiting the same issues. And so you're never, you're never really at the beginning in any or sort of objective sense. You're always in the middle, but before something. So it's a better idea to think of it like, kind of like that. So for some people, maybe the, first, maybe, maybe the first thing for them where they are is to change the garments. But for another person, maybe, that's not, maybe the garments are fine for where they're at. They need to be focusing on something next or something prior. What, what does that mean that what a Bainini does to become a Bainini and Sadiq does to become a Sadiq? We'll just learn it and we'll see. Okay. So far, so, I don't know, so good, but clear? Mm-hmm. 
Okay, so this is this is the. Can we use the word perfect? Would that be a fair word to say that when we this banani, in terms of their behavior, they are perfect. Yes. Like you cannot improve upon their behavior, um, in any obvious way. I mean, obviously they can they can improve. They can be on a deeper level, but given where they are, I mean that's that's the case. Now I I do want to point something out. Now I want to take the kind of the abstraction and, and make it more human for a moment. The more materialistic a person is, the more material things they will need to do mitzvahs. Does that make sense? The more materialistic the person is, the more material things they will need to do mitzvahs. Simple example. If you don't have air conditioning, how does that affect your ability to study Torah? Right. So I have a Harusa, for instance, and just it's very interesting. He is less materialistic than I am. Just this is a, a, whether whether this is a by choice or by habit or by 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 genetics and temperament it doesn't matter. But the truth is, so like this, for instance, um, if it's too hot, we, we sit and learn together. If it's too hot or too cold, I'm very sensitive to that. He less sensitive to it, right? So he's there. He's just schwitzing a little bit. It's fine. Just I come in to sit down. He has his, he has like a little like storage room that he turned into like a private base measures for two. Where he sits. Anyway, so um, so it's very nice, nice place to learn. So he doesn't usually have the air conditioner on in the summer unless it's really hot. When I come and learn, even in the winter, unless it's really cold day, like I just feel this is stifling and I can't focus. But for that matter, I'm also like that when I sleep. I have a very hard time to sleep when 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 like. When, you know, some people like if, if it's if it if it, there's not like a if it's not really really cold or a fan, I find it hard to fall asleep. Okay, there are people that are more, okay. Um, you know the 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 the, the, the what was considered to a, for a person. This is probably more this is more cultural and habitual. But if you imagine that you know when you haven't eaten a decent meal, right, that starts to like affect you, right. But now, what's a decent meal if you're growing up in Tsarist Russia? Mm-hmm. And what's a ze- decent meal if you're growing up in the, in, in, in the 1950s and 60s in the U.S.? Are not the same thing, right? Mm-hmm. So you know, imagine you have all these like, Hasidic mentors who grew up at the end of the Tsarist Russia, beginning of Communist Russia age, right? Now they're educating all these Bakr in America in the 1950s and 1960s. Like you can see there's going to be a disconnect, right? So the Rebbe once said, you know, that for the American students, like they have to have chicken during the middle of the week. Like, like if, you, if you don't like, now in Russia, if you have chicken on Shabbos, you are lucky. So there are these elements in which that, that the more enmeshed a person is in their materialistic existence, not as an ideology, but just as a quality of, 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 of experiencing life, that is obviously going to affect things, Right? Um, and you know the same thing is with finances and with all sorts of things and so it is possible for a person to grow for a person could grow to be less influenced by their physical conditions right so that something like the temperature of the air around them doesn't affect them as much right that could change so what was considered to be for them like in helping them connect to Hashem because enables them to do more Torah mitzvahs can at some point possibly not be that anymore Right? The most obvious example of this is like prizes and rewards. Giving children candy or something equivalent 
in order to encourage them to be more involved in Torah mitzvahs. So ancient Jewish tradition. But I think we all think there's something pretty off if we're handing around lollipops, you know, to all of the people in shul for davening well. <laughs> like, here you are, Mr. Finkelstein. You did a good davening today, right? Like, there's something like, really? Really? There's something off about that, right? Now, we can debate how, you know, where these lines are, if they're lines of the gradations. But, but that one, in other words, this notion of that it's for the Torah mitzvahs has to be... Um, modified to the actual human being. Okay? And so what is indulgent for one person is not necessarily indulgent for another. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, what makes the bainini the bainini here we're saying is that if it meets the criteria of originating klipa, they will not do it. They will not speak based on that. They will not entertain such thoughts. Even if it's not considered indulgent for them? That, but that's the, that, that, the, if, it's, if, it's in, if, it's, if it's not indulgent for them, then it's not a regimen clip, but that's something they actually need. Oh. Right? Stuff that they actually need that in order to, 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 to do to our mitzvahs. Don't you um, not believe in needs or something? I don't believe in a need want distinction in this, like some profound way. I think I think if you understand, I think if you, if you, I, I'm 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 using the need need in the sense I believe needs as a contextualized thing. Given who I am, given my aims, I can't meet my aims without this thing. Therefore, it's a need, right? If I were to switch my aims or switch who I am, it would no longer be a need. That's what I'm saying. It's not an absolute needs. Like, do I need to eat breakfast? I mean. Well, it depends on all sorts of things, like my metabolism, what I'm doing. <laughs> let's say, I mean, let's assume I want to live, right? Let's assume I want to do things that are productive, right? Let's assume that my metabolism is such that, you know, I could say, well, you know what? If I, if I don't eat breakfast, I'm not going to do well on my, you know, teaching or whatever. So I need to eat breakfast. Or give you another thing. Do I need to eat before davening? You're not allowed to eat before davening. You know this, yes? It's forbidden to eat before davening. On the other hand, it is also, you're not allowed to daven when you're hungry. Did you know that? I didn't. Yeah, two halachas. You're not allowed to daven when you're hungry? Why are you not allowed to daven when you're hungry? Distract you. Distract you from davening. Also, you can't daven when you like, need to go to the bathroom. That's right. You can't daven, right? right. Yeah. Okay, so now, so that's an interesting thing. So it actually says in Shulchan Aruch that if you are eating because you are hungry, then... Then No, then... Then you're allowed to eat before davening. Isn't there a distinction of eating technically before davening? It's like a meal with bread, so it's like a no, 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 no. The strict halacha is like this. You want the, the strict halacha is like this. You are allowed allowed to eat before davening. Um, the basic reason you're not supposed to take care of your needs before you talk to God. Um, the exception, and it's considered to be a form of arrogance. The exception to that is drinking water. You're allowed to drink water before davening. Water has been extended throughout Jewish history to include tea, coffee, according to some people, tea with milk and sugar without milk and sugar. And basically the argument being is that is it, is it socially the same thing as water once was? So if coffee with sugar and milk is the final thing you go to a cafe for, then, there's, then obviously you can't have coffee with sugar and milk. But if coffee with sugar and milk is the same, basically the same thing that people you know, back in the day just got a glass of water before they you know, started the day, mm-hmm. Then there's argument to say that, I mean, that's how you got water to extent to coffee. And, you know, so I'm not getting into that debate. 
But then there's a whole other thing altogether, which is that if you are, you're not allowed to daven when you're hungry. Now, this goes into the question about rabbis making judgment calls. So I'm just going to put the halacha as is. If you are hungry, um, such that the hunger would obstruct you from davening, davening again being a, something that is done with the mind and the heart, not just with the lips, then you are not supposed to daven. Um, same way you're not supposed to daven when you're sick. You're not supposed to daven when you're stressed. Okay? Yeah. People don't know this. Um, Isn't that a thing that you're supposed to daven, Tashem? Like when you need anything and when something's... When you're stressed. Because stress comes from when you need something. No, there's daven. stress and de-stress. When you are stressed, you can't focus on what you're doing, you know, like that kind of thing. What about sick? What does that... I Same issue. If you're sick, can you really focus on your davening? Like, and you're just not going to daven? Ah, so because of that... So if you look in like the, the, the Rambam and most of the medieval, they always say like, you know, for instance, the Rambam says that three days before a journey, you shouldn't daven because you're obviously stressed out about the journey and so you shouldn't be davening because you're just going to say, because you're just going to say the words by, by rote. Now, something happened where the rabbis said, well, it seems that people just say the words by rote anyway. So we're, if, we, if we start, if we, we're, we might as well like tell people to say them because maybe once in a while they'll daven, but there's kind of like a concession to the people not davening properly. Okay. So then the question is, okay, well then if that's the case, maybe we should like disband the whole hunger thing because like, you know, people are just kind of saying the words by rote more or less anyway, so does it really matter that their stomach's grumbling and thinking about breakfast? It's like not the end of the world, right? Mm-hmm. On the other hand, if you take the view that we should really demand of people that they strive to pray as one ought to pray, you know, avoid the service of the heart, then maybe we should, you know, be a little more stringent on the other end, right? So this again becomes a classic Hasidic, misnagdic halacha dispute, where the dispute is not so much about the halacha in black and white, it's the question of how to apply it. Do you want to be more stringent about the arrogance associated with eating before praying? Or do you want to be more strict about the importance of praying wholeheartedly and removing anything that could distract you? And so the Hasidic halakh authorities tend to rule on one side and the Masnagdic authorities tend to rule on the other side, which is why it is quite common Hasidic custom for people to have coffee and cake or something else before daven, especially if they tend the daven to take quite a while and there's a concern that they will end up be thinking about breakfast in the middle of, you know, Shemoneser or something. Mm-hmm. Conversely, it is quite customary amongst non-Hasidim to try and get the davening done early and quickly so as not to runs the issue of, you know, okay. getting too hungry and stuff. So it's a question of what's called in halachad, shikul das, a judgment call, rather than, like, the law as it is on paper. You know, depending on where you're going to put more weight. Um, certainly, if you are approached to davening is to spend an hour or two studying chassidus and two or three hours davening, and you haven't had anything, you know, it's going to be a little, it's going to take it a an effect on you. Okay. So, like, you can speak about different needs and, you know, different people can be in different states and whatever. So, it's important to understand that, that we should not understand this person to just be an ascetic, that they're, like, abstaining from all, you know, mundane things and living off of the bare minimum, right? Because living off of the bare minimum affects your ability to function. Right? So, this person may, in fact, you know, eat three, you know, square meals a day, get eight hours of sleep, Right? work at an upper-middle-class job, right, take their family on vacation, and still all be a Bainini, right? That is not, and conversely, you could have a person who's an ascetic, right? They barely engage in any physical things, and yet they're, you know, 
they have an extra, you know, an extra half a piece of bread when they break their fasts, that's just because they like it, just because they're indulging, right? It, so it, it, it's not, it's important to understand the dynamic here is the origination in the klipa, which is defined as that which is not bringing me closer to Hashem, and then closeness to Hashem comes to the mitzvah, so either it's a mitzvah or it's going to enable me to do mitzvahs. Make sense? Okay. He has never committed nor ever will commit any transgression. Neither can the name wicked be applied to him even temporarily or even for a moment throughout his life. Well, there we go. We are never going to be a Bainini because what does it say? Never throughout this person's life has this person ever committed this transgression. Never been called wicked once. Never compromised with the animal soul once. While they were considered abandoned. Oh, that's right. So that's what I'm interested in, right? Is that this is not talking about the historical fact of whether or not the person ever sinned. Mm. This is talking about the Mingabain. Now, the question is, well, why is Altaba write it that way? He writes it in this kind of very extreme way. They never did. They never will. Um, I'm going to give you the, the, the kind of the more classic interpretation that the Rebbe gives to this. Um, I might touch on a deeper interpretation that I gave later in, his, in, in the, Rebbe, the, Rebbe, the Rebbe's life. The Rebbe um, gave a talk and explained the section in kind of a deeper way. Um, if you look up in the laws of tshuva, we mentioned this about tshuva, the, uh, the, the Ramam the discusses someone who's done tshuva completely and wholly and fully. And one of the things that the Ram says about a true bal tshuva, someone who's truly done tshuva, is that Hashem can testify about them that they will never sin. Also says about a Balchuva that a Balchuva, when, when, when their previous actions are brought up, will say, that was not me. I'm not the person who did those things. Okay. Now, I just want to point out the similarity between what, what the Rambam says and here, right? This person says, I didn't do those things. And here it says the Bain never sinned, right? It says there that the person who does complete Shuvah, Shem testifies that they will never sin. And it says here, this person will never sin. So it seems to be that the, that the person can become a Benini by doing the kind of tshuva that the Ramam describes as a complete tshuva, which is kind of what we discussed previously when I spoke about how the Russia does tshuva and stale remains a Russia, because how the, the tshuva is kind of directed towards the behavior rather than the very mode of being itself. Okay. Now what that means is like this. Is it true that because you become a Benini, your free will is removed, you can no longer sin? No. Let me ask you a different question. Can a tzaddik sin? No. So it's a misleading question because I'm using the word can in a very ambiguous way. If I change the question, is it possible for someone who is currently a tzaddik to eventually do a sin? Yeah. Okay, the answer to that is yes. Does a tzaddik have the free will that would make it possible for them to sin? Mm-hmm. Does a tzaddik have anything in their makeup that would motivate them to sin? Mm-hmm. No. So you are right. Is there what? Well, this gets into the issues of free will. So that's why I broke it up into three things. So let's start with the first question, right? Because a person is a tzaddik today, does that preclude them from actually sinning at some point in the future? And the answer to that is no. Obviously, when they sin in the future, they will not be a tzaddik, right? If a person is a tzaddik today, they couldn't be a, not a tzaddik, let's say, years down the road. Okay. 
the same. How is it possible for a toddler to not become not be Islamic anymore? Well, remember that it's their love of Hashem that makes them a tzaddik, mm-hmm. and it's the love of Hashem that subdues or transforms the animal soul. Mm-hmm. So, what would happen if that love were to disappear? That's right. It's actually a common occurrence for tzaddikim. Really? Yes. The, the second section of Tanya called Chinuch Katan, Education of the Youth, um, which is the introduction to, or sorry, the introduction second section, which is Shayich Muna, the Gate of Unity and Faith, has an introduction called the Chinuch um, Katan, the Education of the Youth, describes this idea, and he says, The, uh, those who are familiar with the esoteric meaning of scripture know that the explanation of the verse for a tzaddik falls seven times and rises up again. And especially since a person is called mobile, not static, he must ascend from level to level, not remain at one level forever. Between one level and the next, before he can reach the higher one, he's in a state of decline from the previous level. The idea being is that two things that are not commensurate, you have to lose the first before you get to the second. There are different kinds of love that a tzaddik can have. And if the two kinds of loves that he could have are not commensurate between the one he has and the one he's trying to get to or God wants to bring him to, he has to lose the first before he gains the second. This is similar to the idea that you have to stop being the caterpillar before you can become the butterfly. Have you ever actually opened up a cocoon? Oh, no. Have you? Mm-mm. Do you know what you find inside if you open it up? No. A caterpillar? No. A disintegrated, yeah. It, it literally, it literally, yeah. It's not like the caterpillar grows wings. It, the body kind of like dissolves and restructures itself. Wow. Yeah. I've seen pictures. I didn't open it myself. Oh my gosh. Okay. The analogy found in Chassidus is the seed has to rot before the plant grows. Okay. Um, think about how your childhood has to end in this horrific experience called being a teenager before you can become an adult. <laughs> right? <laughs> right? <laughs> can I go on, right? <laughs> you just go on and on, right? Like, th- any two things which are not commensurate. Um, yeah. Okay. So, what happens when they, when they, so you have this tzaddik is one kind, and love of Hashem could be infinite, right? So, they're experiencing love in one way, and they, enough to make them a tzaddik, and now they, Hashem wants to, or they're trying to release love in a different way, right? So what happens? They have to lose the previous love before they gain. So he's in a state of decline from the previous level. Yet it is written, although he falls, he shall not be utterly cast down. And it is considered a decline only in comparison with his former state. Now God forbid in comparison with all other people, for he's still above them in the service of God, insomuch as there remains in him the impression of his former state. But the root of his service is the love from which he's been educated and trained from his youth. In other words, the idea is that the tzaddik may lose the love that makes him a tzaddik, he does not necessarily lose his ability to be a Bainani. Um, there are plenty of stories of the Baal Shem Tov like this, where the Baal Shem Tov lost all of the spiritual enlightenment and things that made him a tzaddik. And he just had to contend with, you know, being a devout Jew and sincere, and loving God on his own, with his own capacity. So they turn into a Bainani, like they go from level to level? Mm-hmm. But they don't have any bad in them for the bad to... Well, that depends, because there's the complete tzaddik, the incomplete tzaddik, and... And even that, there's levels. I don't. I don't want to go into all the complexities of it. Um, we could, but I think it's it's also too far. Like it's not so, okay. so, 
so a tzaddik, the same way you could become a tzaddik, you could unbecome a tzaddik. Okay? Now, so, so in that sense, yes. But, but obviously they're not saying when they're a tzaddik. There's another idea, uh, which is free will. Free will is a very difficult idea. I don't want to make it, I don't want to make a big, big deal about it other than to simply say, part of what free will means is that you are not constrained by yourself. So, I have no desire to do X. I can still make myself do X, even though I have no desire to do so. Why? Good. If I only can do things that I have a desire to do, then I do not have free will. Okay? Does a tzaddik lose free will? No. So therefore, in theory, as an exercise of pure free will, they could sit. Now, the moment they made that decision, they would cease to be a tzaddik, right? Mm-hmm. Now, but that would be, for most of us, would be considered an act of madness because we tend to think of acting in a way that has no basis in any motivation inside yourself as just like pure insanity, right? But, so I don't want to elaborate on that, but it, it is possible. Um, there's actually a discourse that says Moshe Rabbeinu was capable of sin in as much as he was a human being with free will. But now we move to the third thing, which is, was there anything in the tzaddik motivating them to sin? No. Right. That makes sense? So I, I broke the, that question can into three different questions. One is a question, I'm going to take the middle question first. One is a question about the nature of free will and the, the, the kind of the transcendent paradoxes involved in that. And like, we'll just set that aside. That in principle, anybody can sin because... Okay, by the way, the corollary to that is even the worst sinner can do what? Tshuva. No mitzvahs are easy. Tshuva. Mm-hmm. Why? Even, right, even, the, even the rush of rally, even the wicked person who doesn't have any regret at all can still do tshuva. Okay? There's an argument that's one, that tshuva cannot be a mitzvah because it's an act of just pure volition. It's pure will. There's, it can't be commanded because it's not, it's not basic. You're in a state of total rejection of God. Well, all of a sudden now you're going to come back to God. Why? What, what basis? Isn't, um, wait, isn't it um, a mitzvah to do tshuva? There's an argument about it. There is an argument to be made that tshuva is not a mitzvah because it's just an act of will. Whereas a mitzvah presupposes a certain sense of allegiance and loyalty to God that's motivating your compliance. So a tzaddik is able to do... You can't, you can't, ima- you can't imagine it. You can't, Im- this gets into the issues of free will. I don't want to go, you can't imagine it. Like, the, the best example is to think of the opposite. Think about someone who's the worst sinner imaginable. Like, they've totally thrown themselves into sin. And then, not because something happens that makes them feel bad, they just decide to turn away from sin. Like, that's very hard to imagine, right? You can't imagine it, right? But the notion of free will demands that that be possible, right? So then you also have to concede that the inverse would be true. You could have a person who has zero inclination towards anything unholy and yet as an act of will could then reject God. Both of those are nonsensible, right? They're not, they're not, they're not, because they don't have any underlying motivation in the experience of the person to drive them there. Okay, setting that aside, you have another thing, which is you could be a tzaddik, but you could stop being a tzaddik, right? That can happen. So clearly the person has, who now has 
a tzaddik could in the future sin, right? But now you have the question, which is the more interesting, which one the Tanya is dealing with is, can they sin as a tzaddik? Meaning, as a tzaddik, is there anything within them that would motivate them to sin? And what's the answer to that? No. So barring the, the you know, mystery of free will, setting that aside, right? And can, taking for granted that they maintain this experience of love of Hashem, right? They will never sin. Okay. Is that uniquely true of a tzaddik or also true of a bainani? Now, what does that tell us about a bainini? Is a bainini just white-knuckling their way through being a bainini? Just like, they're on the edge of sin and they're holding themselves back at every moment? No. Because if that's how you're living life, what's going to happen? You can't say this person will never sin. Right? We have to differentiate going back, right? right? Can you imagine going back to the example of the village, right? If you have a village made of wood, it's heated by wood stoves, right? Can you say, this village will never burn? No. Well, it hasn't burned in 20 years. Doesn't matter, right? It's just a matter of time. It's just a matter of time. And even if it, it, someone, someone had a small house fire and you put it out, like each time that it didn't burn, it was on the cusp of burning. So it's not, it's, it's not, it's not authentic in any way to say this will never burn. Right? You know, if you have a, if you have a city um, made of steel and concrete, right? And, and you know, modern fire suppression systems installed, right? Does it make sense to say it will never burn down? Sure. Now, I don't know, like, a nuclear bomb could go off over and and annihilate the whole thing, fine, but, like, that's out of the scope of it, right? It's not... Make sense? Mm -hmm. I mean, just think of it, there was a big fire now in Brooklyn. There was a big fire in Brooklyn? Bronx, I think, actually. There was a big fire in Bronx. There was a whole apartment building. But the thing is, there's this whole apartment building burned down. Not burned down. It was a major fire. A lot of people died. But by a lot of people, uh, I, I don't mean to, 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 to decrease the tragedy of it. I just meant to put it in a little perspective. I think it's like something like between, like something in the order of 10 to 20 people died. A huge apartment building. How many people live in the city of New York? About the same number of people that live in the state of Israel. Like, New York is not a city that burns down. You understand, right? The village, the stuff burned down. Like, nobody had houses. It was dangerous, right? It was a a very different kind of a a thing. So the tzaddik will never sin. Now, that should be obvious, because does the tzaddik experience on any level any inclination towards klipa? Mm -hmm. No. Either because it's been transformed in the case of the complete tzaddik, or it becomes completely subdued, right? And subjugated in the case of the incomplete tzaddik. So given that, they will never sin, right? For whatever reason, which we do not know, we're saying the same thing about the bainini. The bainini, for whatever reason, will never sin. Now, could they stop being a bainini? Sure, they could stop being a bainini. Do they have free will? Of course they have free will. But just like we said about the tzaddik, they will never sin as a state of their soul, so too, whatever state the soul of the Bainini is in is such that sin is not possible. Okay, it's possible because of free will, it's possible because they could stop being a Bainini, but in as much as they are a Bainini, there is no place for sin.
And again, sin here doesn't just mean what's forbidden. Sin even means that thing, which those things which are not helpful and conducive to connection to Hashem. So they're motivated to sin. They Well, clearly, because they're not a tzaddik, right? The animal, right? And that, 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 that's what this chapter is going to try and get at, but try and like, describe it more, more, more precisely. Now, what I want to say is that clearly this should indicate that this is not just an act of like, self-control 24-7. Not saying self-control is not going to be part of it. It is going to be part of it. But I, I think as human beings, we understand that you cannot live a life where your inner being is in one direction and you're using just self-control to get yourself to act entirely differently, right? You can succeed in that for a time being, but you cannot say about a person they will never break that state. Like that, that's, that's not a, there's, no, there's, no, there's nothing stable about that. So you couldn't say they'll never sin. You can say they, they've managed not to sin so far, which is pretty cool, right? That's a tremendous act of will, but, but that's not, that's not, it, 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 it's a shock if it's sustained long term, and it's certainly not the kind of thing you would say it's a foregone conclusion that they're not going to say. So then, how come a lot of people talk about with the Bani is that they have these urges to sin, but they choose not to? Well, because choosing not to might be more than just pure willpower. Mm-hmm. Right. It does have something to do with the love of Hashem. It has something to do with the love of Hashem. It has to do with a sense of who you are. It has a lot. There's a lot, right? There's going to be a lot involved in this. Why the whole book about it, right? So, um, and then the same thing when we say about that they've never sinned. What does it mean they've never sinned? In their state of being, they've never sinned. So, a, a simple way of thinking about this is that. There are things that we can no longer see ourselves doing, even though we have done them, right? I mean, simple examples, right, are so many things that we did as toddlers, we just could not see ourselves doing, right? Could you, could you, could you, could you see yourself? Um, I, I have a two-year-old, and I came home yesterday, and he was eating cookies. So he had a bag of, of chocolate cookies. The bag of chocolate cookies looked like it was made of, full of chocolate syrup. His face looked like it. Now, I was like, where did he get all that? And I realized it wasn't, it was, it was just that I don't know how the cookies got wet. Oh I think it had to do with the amount of drool and saliva. And, but they're mashed over his face. They're in the bag. They're on his hands. And I'm thinking like, this is just like, Shocking. why? why? <laughs> now, I can guarantee you, we all, at, when we were that age, did things analogous to that. One of my kids, um, when he was about one and a half, we went out to dinner with my father-in-law for lunch in a restaurant. And um, they brought out little packets of butter. And he proceeded to apply the butter to his face. <laughs> Right? Now, I'm sure that if you ask your parents if you have similar stories about you when you were that age, they have them, right? But can you imagine yourself like you're sitting there with, with family and you just take the butter. Just like, like that. You 
can't imagine yourself doing it, right? It completely, the state of being you are as a person is completely removed from whatever could possibly make that seem like a, a reasonable thing to do to a toddler, right? Right? Okay, so th- that has to do with kind of, a, a, you know, just the basic growing up things, but you can apply that also to moral things, right? Um, and so this person, if they were to go back to the, as the Ram says, if you go back to the exact same scenario where they've sinned their gr- most grievous sins at the height of intense passion and whatever, they would not sin because something has radically changed about how they are in the way they relate to themselves, to God, to whatever it is, which we're going to elaborate on, that has made it that they can say with honesty, like the Ram says, that wasn't me. Not I'm denying the fact that I did it. I'm denying my responsibility for doing it. What I'm denying is my, my identification with the state of being that made that thing possible. So I would like to actually use the following word. Uh, it is impossible for a Bainini to sin. I do not mean they lack the free will to sin. I do not mean that someone who's a Bainini never will sin because they could stop being many. But I mean, in as much as they are a Bainini, whatever is happening in them, whatever is going on that makes them a Bainini, the consequence of that is that for them, sin is an impossibility. Okay? Now, for a tzaddik, sin is an impossibility makes a lot of sense because they have no motivation. For a Bainini, what makes sin impossible is going to be a little bit more complicated. It will have something to do with the love of Hashem, but it will be more complicated, be more involved. Which means now, in retrospect, we have an interesting kind of criteria for a Russia. What is a Russia? Is a Russia someone who sins? Someone who can sin. Someone who can sin. Not, like, again, anyone can sin and thinks of free will. Anyone can sin, like, someone who the state of their soul is such that sin is a legitimate possibility. And what's very interesting is that in chapter one of Tanya, one of the things that the Alter does, he quotes a Gemara which says, someone who has the opportunity to rebuke someone else to get them to stop sinning and doesn't do so, is a Russia. Wow. And you think, well, why is that person a Russia? Well, why aren't you rebuking the other person when you have the opportunity, okay? Caveat, opportunity means all the opportunity. You could really do it properly, successfully, right? I'm, I'm getting into all those things. You shouldn't be yelling at people viciously because that generally doesn't work. But you had the opportunity to really rebuke them such that if you had done so, they would have abstained from sinning. You didn't do so. Why didn't you do so? What's your attitude towards sin? It's not that bad. It's not that bad. You have a tolerance to sin. So then, right, where's that dividing line between the, tzad, between the Russia and the Bainani? The Bainani has an intolerance of sin. There's something in them that doesn't, right, does not. Sin is not on the table. Whereas for the Russia, what? In terms of what? That's why I said you have the opportunity. Opportunity means all of the caveats that go into that. I'm saying, so maybe you're not allowed to, there's a lot of times where, where, where you might physically be able to rebuke, but not halakhically able to rebuke. Mm-hmm. Give you a simple example where you're not able to rebuke. Someone is doing something forbidden. They don't know it's forbidden. It's a rabbinic prohibition. And in an honest estimation, if you tell them, they're just going to blow you off. What's the halakha? Not allowed to tell them. 
It's important to know that. Now, if you think you could get through to them, but it would take time, do you have to? Yes. Hmm. Does that override every other obligation you have? No. So you have to like, it's not always so simple, but let's say all the check marks are made, right? And yet you don't. What does that mean? That means you're tolerant of sin. Like sin is okay. I'm I'm not sinning. He's sinning. So that means the Bainini has cultivated somehow in themselves is a a a a a zero tolerance for klipa, so that they can honestly say, "I would never sin. I, as I am, the person I am, I have never sinned. Not in terms of like." Responsibility. I'm responsible for the sins I did in the past, but I'm not that person. And if I were to re-experience those same experiences, I could not, I, I, it actually couldn't happen. I couldn't, I couldn't. And that it's centered around not the transgressive element of it, but just the mere fact that it's klipa. This is not a compromising position, is it? And yet, as we're going to see, this person is not a tzaddik or anywhere remotely close to being a tzaddik. Good? Okay. I just want to, because I want to not leave us on something that's so remote. There are things in our life where, regarding particular issues, we are like a Benini. There are things that no matter what you feel, you would not allow yourself to do. Like, let's say, the average Orthodox Jew when it comes to eating on Yom Kippur. Does it really matter how hungry you are? How good the food is? How the, nobody's watching you? And is it really self-control? No. It's just, it's Yom Kippur, so we don't eat. <laughs> right? Or... Can I say the same things for, like, murdering? Unfortunately, no, because most of the time that you don't murder, it's because you don't have any drive to murder or opportunity. (laughs) And the unfortunate truth is, is that most people who have the drive to murder and the opportunity to murder and don't murder is usually because of an external inhibition or they just were bad at it. That is the very scary truth. In other words, if you got to a point where you really wanted to kill somebody and you really had the opportunity to kill somebody, you probably, not you personally, but just people end up doing that. So the reason we don't... Most people don't murder is because they don't want to. So the reason we don't eat on Yom Kippur is not because we don't have the drive to, it's because we don't have the opportunity to? No, we do. Something else is stopping us. If you have the opportunity, you can like go into the kitchen, no one's watching you and eat, right? Mm-hmm. Murder is hard to do. It's like really hard to do. It's hard, first off, it's hard to want to do. And then even if you want to do it, it's actually, actually hard to do. And then even if you get yourself to start, it's not an easy thing to finish, depending on how you're doing. Like, like, like you actually read things like that. Like, like, like. Oh, gosh. No, really. What? 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 But it's all very, like... There's a lot of external messages that say to a person, don't eat on Yom Kippur. It doesn't come from, I mean, I guess, depending on the person. Well, well that, that, that's, 
I'm not saying the person is a Bainini. What I'm saying right. is that yeah. this is a Bainini-like thing. And the thing is that, the, the, that a lot of these things are not like that. I mean, the, you, 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 as we elaborate, we'll talk about it. But, but a lot of times we buy into stories which are just not true because they fit a certain overall narrative. One of the things we often buy into is that a lot of what goes on with us is the result of external influences and is not really reflective of us. Um, famously, um, there's a book called Man's Search for Meaning um, by Viktor Frankl. Oh. Mm-hmm. So Viktor Frankl has a, has a critique of Freud. I, mean, over some, I don't want to get into the specifics of his thing, but there's just a very general point. So there was a man named Sigmund Freud. And Sigmund Freud had an idea that most of what we, we would consider to be morality, ethics, virtue is what he called the superego, something which has been imposed on ourself. Superego means it's, it's from beyond the self, outside the self, imposed from society, imposed from others. And therefore, if you remove those influences, you would see the, that that's not really actual anything to do with the person themselves. That's basically the argument you're making. And um, so Viktor Frankl disagreed with this point of view. And he said that many of the so-called moral, ethical, virtuous drives of a person are actually intrinsic things that maybe are more shaped by experience, but the underlying drive. And you use an example like language. Language is an intrinsic part of human beings. Of course, which language you speak and how you speak, it depends on the culture. Right? But language as a faculty is not given to you from culture. That's why you can't give it to a monkey or something. Setting that aside. She says it was all very academic debate. Because, like, I mean, when's the last time you saw somebody completely stripped away of any societal influences? Mm-hmm. But Sigmund Freud never went to concentration camps, and I did. And let me tell you, it turns out that when you strip away all of that other stuff, you still see that their people are driven by things that we would consider to be, um, you know, moral, ethical, virtuous. Not everybody. And so that kind of confirmed to him that this story might be a good story in trying to like if you're if you never if if, if you're if you're if you find that idea mode compelling for some reason and you've never actually seen people outside of the social environment. So now getting back to Yom Kippur thing. Many a Jew who is mildly religious has felt that they don't eat on Yom Kippur because of you know the societal things and yet has found themselves in a situation where all of those things have disappeared and yet not only have they not eaten Yom Kippur, they felt a stronger need to maintain the not eating on Yom Kippur or fill in the equivalent. So what does that tell you? Not just society. That's right. But there is a motivation, going back to Freud, that's why I brought the example Freud up. There is a motivation for saying it's society. Because once you say it is society... It's not my fault. Not. Who says I have to listen to society? Maybe there's something, maybe there's some virtue breaking three of the things that society imposes upon me. And so there's this kind of way of rejecting kind of a, an absolute moral obligation by reducing it all to societal expectation. How do many people justify being not religious if they grew up religious? Is by, era- is by reinterpreting whatever instinct they have to do to our mitzvahs as something that was just imposed on them by their society rather than a shaping of some kind of an internal thing that they have intrinsically. It's a convenient story if you want to throw off the shackles of religious morality, like someone like Freud. So, now, that doesn't prove anything to the skeptic, but I think it's something to be aware of for ourselves, that we might tell ourselves a story which sounds very innocent, but is actually part of a whole larger 
narrative that maybe we don't want to buy into. If I go around saying that all of my religious or moral instincts are societally based and that I don't really have any, uh, any affinity to them that, 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 I, that is of my own, that goes a long way to allowing me to rationalize transgression, which is you know, very much Freudian in the way he thought, in contrast to Victor Frankl. So, so there. Is this why the saying, the saying of what's forbidden you shouldn't do and what's permitted you don't have to do? Yes. What's forbidden is forbidden and what's permitted is unnecessary. It, 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 sounds, it sounds better in Yiddish and Hebrew because both in Yiddish and Hebrew you can make it a little more pithy. What's it in Yiddish? In Yiddish, um, Tarmanish, 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 What you may, you don't need. And then in Hebrew, the word for permitted and the word for unnecessary are very similar. Mutter and miutar. Mashu mutter miutar. But, uh, yeah. That's the way it is. Thank you. All right, tomorrow we have questions and answers. So prepare your questions. I'd say prepare the answers, but it'd be weird <laughs> to do that.